Once again, I appreciate the invitation to be with you today to share in this series. It's a very important series, as all of God's Word is, of course. But this particular series, I think, is very practical for all of us and hopefully brings us to a realization of, of how much we depend upon our Lord Jesus Christ for the strength and the help that we need and the wisdom we need every day to, to live our everyday lives and to grow in our relationship with God, with Christ, but also grow in our relationship with one another as Christians, but also with the world around us. And that, of course, is what we're discussing tonight. But uh, I do appreciate the invitation and the chance to be with you. Uh, it's good to have my parents, sister and niece, with us tonight. Uh, some of you know my folks and have known them for many years, and of course, it's always good to have them in the audience. We're going to get right down to business tonight as we talk about this subject of being different from the world. Ever since the first century, those who have followed the Lord Jesus Christ have wrestled with the question, even though I live in the world, how much should I be a part of the world? And of course, Jesus and the apostles had lots to say in the New Testament about how we should be separate from the world, how, should we, how we should be different. But Christians have wrestled with that as to, as to how far they should go with those, those teachings and how much, uh, how much uh, relationship, how much communication, how much should I in, in, in encounter the world, how much uh, of a part of the world should I be? Uh, should, in our day and time, we might ask ourselves the question, should I totally isolate myself from the world as as certain variations of the Amish and Mennonite religions? Or, or how far do I go in my relationships with people of the world? Jesus made the comment to his disciples in John chapter 15 and verse 18. He said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. That's another way of saying the old expression, we are in the world, but not of the world. And that expression should be in front of our minds each and every day, as not only as, as we live the sermon on the job and in our homes, in our, in our church relationships with each other, but it should be in front of our hearts and minds in every situation and every relationship of life. We're in the world, but not of the world. And we know, of course, that many times the Israelites in the Old Testament got themselves into trouble with their relationship to God because they got too close to the world, because they developed friendships with the world, even though God warned them about close relationships and friendships, if you will, with the world. We know what James said in James chapter 4 and verse 4, where he said, Whosoever therefore shall be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Jesus said in Matthew 6 and verse 24, No man can serve two masters, for either he will love the one and hate the other, or he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, which is another word for unrighteousness. And so all, 
we who are Christians and have been Christians for many years still struggle with the question of how close do I get to the world? How close of friendship do I form with people of the world, uh, even with people of faith, of different religious faiths, even with people who believe in God but don't share the same faith or convictions as I do. And so we'll include all of those factors as we talk about the, the need and the importance and the necessity of being different from the world. This is a difficult question, of course, because the temptation is to become like everybody else. And the temptation is for us to conform to the world in, in everything that the world says ought to be done and conform to the world in every aspect of our lives. We want to begin tonight by looking at some, some words in the Bible that mean the same thing as different. Jesus doesn't necessarily use the words different from the world, but there are different words or synonyms for the word different that convey the same meaning and the same idea. For example, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul in verses 1 through 8 talks several times about the word sanctification. The word sanctification means to be set apart. And that by itself talks about the fact that we are to be different. When we arose from the watery grave of baptism and were raised to walk in newness of life, that automatically set us on a different path and, and set us into a different way of life and made us different from the world. Not necessarily better or more superior to the world, but made us different from the world. And there was, even though we became Christians and started a new life, Jesus still wants, to, wants us to remain in humility and humble, obedient service to him and humility toward our fellow man. But to be sanctified in the eyes of God is to be set apart because of the cleansing blood of our Lord and set apart because of the commitment that we made to our Lord when we obeyed his command to be baptized and to become his faithful children. Another word for different is the word holiness. Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 7 said that God has not called us to uncleanness, but has called us in holiness. Hebrews 12 and verse 14 he says, Pursue peace and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. That signifies how important it is to our Lord for us to live holy lives as well as sanctified lives. Another word for different is the word that Paul used in 2 Corinthians 6 where he told them that there can be no communion with, between righteousness and unrighteousness, no concord or relationship between Christ and Belial because he says to them, Come out from among them and be ye separate, says the Lord and touch not the unclean thing. And if you'll do that, you will be my people, and I will be your God. And so Jesus, Jesus commands us to be separate from the world. And as we said a moment ago, that's difficult, because we live in the world, and we encounter people of the world every single day, either people of different faiths or people who are, are just rank atheists and have no interest in serving God, and no interest in doing what's right. 
That's not only difficult for our young people in, in the school, their school environment, not only difficult for young people in our colleges in which some of their college professors will outright tell them that if you're a Christian and if you believe in God and believe in this man Jesus Christ, you're an ignoramus. And they'll actually use those terms or terms similar to that. But not only is that difficult for our young people, it's difficult for all of us who are Christians, regardless of how long we've been followers of Jesus Christ. It's difficult for us to listen to people mock us, listen to people ask us questions, not in sincere, uh, not in sincere study, but in mock sarcasm. Ask us, well, well, why do you believe in Jesus Christ? Why do you believe in God? Can you prove that there's a God? And so they challenge our faith. But Jesus says you need to be sep we need to be separate. We're in the world, but not of the world. Another word for different is the word that Jesus used in Matthew 5 and verse 13. For he told them that you are the salt of the earth. And we could spend the rest of the time talking about what salt does for the human body and for the world. What, the, what light does, as he says in verses 14 through 16. We are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And of course he says in verses 14 and 15 that we are not to hide our lights, but to shine them before men. And we'll talk more about that later. And then of course, if you think about it in verses 3 through 10, all of these characteristics that we call the Beatitudes, that we are to implement into our, our hearts and lives, all of these attitudes and characteristics are examples of how we are to be different from the world. If we are poor in spirit, if we mourn, uh, and uh, in other words, mourn for the world, if we are meek and humble, if we are hungering and thirsting after righteousness, instead of hungering and thirsting after the desires of the flesh and desires of this world, if we are merciful and pure in heart, if we are peacemakers, and yes, even if we are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Jesus says if you have these attitudes and characteristics, you will be rewarded by your Heavenly Father. You will be different from the world, and the world will consider you to be strange because the world knows nothing about humility. The world knows nothing about selflessness. The world only knows selfishness and pride and arrogance and greed and all the other sins we could talk about. The world doesn't understand the Beatitudes. And sometimes we forget what these Beatitudes really mean. And sometimes we forget to implement them and display them in our lives. And therefore we forget what it means to be different from the world. The theme for tonight's lesson is taken from chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, where Jesus says to them, For I say unto you that unless, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that's a strong statement by our Lord as he begins the sermon and begins his personal ministry as we talked about this morning. We said that his ministry, of course, was a controversial one. And he began his ministry with this sermon 
that challenged their thinking, challenged what they had always been taught about the law of Moses and what they'd always been taught about how to treat their fellow man and how to act in certain situations. The, the scribes and Pharisees had it all wrong. They were, good, they were students of the law. They taught the law. But in many cases, they had perverted the law, not only in their teaching, but in their lives. And therefore, Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And so I use that verse as a foundation for tonight's lesson to help all of us understand what our relationship to God ought to be and what our relationship to the world ought to be and how we can be even more different from the world. And as Jesus talks to us about our righteousness exceeding the righteousness of the world, even the religious world. There are three main areas in which I wanted to focus tonight as we talk about being different from the world. I want to ask the question, what keeps many of us from being different? Let me put it another way. Sometimes, well, yeah, some of you have probably been asked through the years, what do you think is the greatest danger facing the Lord's church today? And if I were to ask each one of you, I would come up with many different answers. But the answer that I'm going to give you tonight may surprise some of you. I believe with all of my heart that the greatest danger facing the Lord's church today, and therefore what keeps many of us from being different from the world, is apathy. And you may be saying, I think I know what apathy means, but what do you mean by apathy keeping many of us from being different? First of all, let's look at a definition of apathy. I got this definition off the internet from a, the University of Tsukuba in Japan, probably from their psychology department, but this was one of the best definitions I've seen of apathy. It says, apathy is a state of not caring, not wanting to know, complacency, indifference. It means to ignore something, to be disinterested in contemplation. Notice the next part of this. Anesthetized to popular culture, a postmodern intellectual narcosis. You know what narcosis is? It's sleepiness and laziness. A postmodern intellectual narcosis, compassion fatigue. It can also mean to be too lazy, too busy. It can mean self-indulgence, non-reflection, non-deliberation, and subconscious blocking of distressing information. And it closed by saying, apathy is less ethically excusable than ignorance. And that's exactly right. But our world falls into the trap of apathy because many in our world say that it doesn't matter what you do, it doesn't matter what you believe, don't rock the boat. What's the buzzword in our society today? 
It's tolerance. Tolerance for any kind of sin. Tolerance for different lifestyles. Tolerance for different religious faiths. And tolerance for many different things. On the surface, that sounds good. Because very few of us enjoy conflict. Very few of us enjoy getting in disagreements and even arguments with people about different things. Very few of us enjoy rocking the boat, so to speak. But what the world does, well, what Satan does through the world, of course, is to lure us into a state of apathy, a state of not caring, a state of indifference, in order for us to be accepted by the world, in order for the world to, to love us, instead of us being more concerned about loving the world and showing the world by our lives what it means to be a Christian. And I want to show in three ways how apathy is dangerous to us. One consequence of apathy is seen through what we call materialism. Now we could define materialism in many different ways. But basically materialism is the attitude of being more concerned about material earthly possessions then we are about our spiritual relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the ways in which apathy manifests itself through materialism is by the attitudes of greed and arrogance. Remember in Luke chapter 12 when the rich man, well, first of all, in verse 15, Jesus taught the lesson. He said, take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life does not consist in the abundance of the, of the things he possesses. And then he illustrated that point with the parable about the rich man who brought forth a, a plentiful crop one year. And he said, well, I don't have enough room right now to store all these crops, so I will, build, I will tear down these barns and build greater. And then after I've stored all these crops, I will sit back, I will take it easy, and eat, drink, and be merry. And we know, of course, what the Lord said to him. He said, you fool. This night shall your soul be required of you, but, and then whose shall those things be which you have provided? And, of course, the lesson that Jesus is trying to teach them is to beware of covetousness, which is the same thing as greed. And along with, along with staying away from greed, he says, beware of arrogance and pride and selfishness. Beware of, of hoarding up material possessions and keeping them only for yourself and not being willing to share them with your fellow man when they have need and just sitting back, taking it easy, eating, drinking, and being merry. Isn't that an illustration of apathy? Not caring and indifference to other people's needs, ignoring other people's needs. In fact, in ignoring your own spiritual needs, that's what materialism does to people. Perhaps my father could tell this story better than I could. But my family has a close friend who now lives in Tampa, Florida. But years ago, she and her husband lived in, in the Madison, Alabama area. And her husband was a successful banker and a deacon in one of the congregations in that area. Very successful person. And, and as the years went by, 
became more successful, and, and eventually they were able to buy hundreds of acres and, 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 and buy a wonderful home for themselves and for their family. And one night, as the wife told us later, they, she and her husband went on a walk on their property. And she made the comment to her husband, isn't it so wonderful what God has provided and done for us? And her husband said, huh, God didn't do this. I did this. And she knew right then that their marriage was in trouble. And sure enough, not long after that, she found out that he'd been having an affair with somebody at the bank. And of course, their marriage was destroyed. And as we talked about this morning, he not only sinned against God and the other person and himself, but sinned against his family and the other person's family. And our friend is still a faithful Christian, but you know that whenever she is reminded of that, she realizes the greed and the arrogance that her husband was filled with. And she understands what that did to her entire family as well as to her husband's soul. Greed and arrogance is just one manifestation of apathy and materialism. Another manifestation is that materialism often leads to compromise with sin. In 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 9, Paul said, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Materialism or over-concern with material things often leads us to compromise with the world because we want to be successful like people of the world. And even if it means cheating someone, or even if it means cheating on our taxes, even if it means that we do some questionable things like go to parties that we should not go to or, or do things that we ought not to do that the boss wants us to do, our lust for success often overcomes our need to stay away from sin. Materialism also often leads to marital problems because it leads to arguments, sometimes leads to adultery and, and infidelity. Years ago, my father and I preached for a, a country church near Tompkinsville, Kentucky, where my mother grew up. And there was a young couple who uh, were just, was just starting out, and, and they were able to buy a home and some property uh, for $100,000. That's not much now, but in the late 70s, that was a lot of money. And they were happy for a while, and, and they were faithful Christians for a while, but before long, they became financially strapped. They were not able to pay the bills. They had problems in their marriage, and eventually the marriage dissolved because they got in way over their, their heads. And those financial problems led to other problems because they had to have it all from the very beginning. 
Materialism also leads to anxiety and stress. We've got to keep up with the Joneses. We've got to, we've got to be like everybody else. We want the latest trinkets. We want the, the latest home, the latest cars. We want the latest computer equipment. And that's a temptation for all of us. We want to have what Joe Smith has next door. But Jesus says in chapter 6, verses 25 through 24, don't be anxious for the things of this life. God will provide your food, clothing, and shelter. And he rebukes those who had become anxious and stressed over whether or not they were going to have enough food, clothing, shelter, money, and so on. And that's why he told them in verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. In Proverbs 22 and verse 7, Solomon makes the point that the rich rules over the poor and the borrower is servant to the lender. I don't know how many of you listened to Dave Ramsey on the radio, the financial guru, who himself has gone through bankruptcy twice and overcome it and now spends his days advising others who are financially strapped. We all know about the stories he listens to every day from people who are so strapped with debt that they don't know what to do. They're stressed. Not only are they stressed, but their marriage and family life is stressed. And every relationship of life is stressed in their lives because of their financial problems. Trying to keep up with the Joneses. And, and the problem for Christians, of course, is are we more concerned about being like everybody else and having what everybody else has, or are we more concerned with being content with what God has provided and what God does provide on a daily basis, and are we more content about preparing ourselves for eternal life than earthly life? Too many times materialism is a result of pure apathy. And of course, another manifestation of materialism is that it causes us to lose our focus on heaven. And so Christ's answer to materialism in, in, in the Sermon on the Mount is where he said in verses 19 through 21 of chapter, of chapter 5, Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, not on earth, because the things of, of this earth will die and will, will be corrupted and they will pass away and you'll pass them on to somebody else and you won't be able to take them with you. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where none of that will occur, where you will have eternal rest and peace of mind and contentment. And seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And God will provide. The second way in which apathy is a danger to us is through what we often call moral relativism. Now you may be asking, what is this word? Why are you using these 10-gallon words with us? Well, let me explain that moral relativism is the same thing that, that we, we were warned about in the 70s when we talked about situation ethics. Remember that term? Situation ethics. And basically, and I'll go through this definition real quickly because it's on the outline when you receive it. 
Basically, moral relativism is the view that ethical standards, morality, and positions of right and wrong are culturally based, and therefore they are subject to a person's individual choice. In other words, we can all decide what's right for us. And nobody else can judge that for us. And if anyone else tries to tell us that what we're doing is wrong, then they're judging us. And that, that's when, of course, they go to Matthew 7 and verse 1 and pervert what Jesus said when he said, Judge not that you be not judged. That's not what Jesus was talking about in the first place, and we all know that. But the world tells us you can decide for yourself what's right for you. And that's nothing more than a state of apathy and indifference and caring more about yourself than you do about other people. Here's how moral relativism conveys itself. We know a lot of people, not just young people, but a lot of people tell us it's okay to do certain things because everybody's doing it. Everybody's going out on Friday night and getting drunk, or all of your friends are, are smoking dope and, and inhaling other dangerous drugs into their system. Everybody's doing it. Don't you want to be accepted? And, of course, the Apostle Paul tells us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your spiritual service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. First of all, it's a lie that everybody's doing it. And secondly... Even if everybody else is doing it, it doesn't make it right. And Jesus explains that very clearly. The world tells us, don't you want to be accepted? Don't you want people to think good of you? Don't you want to climb up the ladder of success in your chosen career? Then you need to conform. You need to go along with what we say is best for you. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, be not deceived. God is not mocked. Because evil companions corrupt good manners or morals. A very simple statement, but very profound. And not only applies to young people and their friendships and peers, but applies to all of us. Because we adults have the temptation sometimes to go along with the world because we, we want to be accepted also and therefore become apathetic to what God says. Another manifestation of moral relativism is when people tell us it's okay to live together and have sex before marriage. And we need to speak very plainly to our young people about how dangerous it is to engage in sexual relations outside the marriage relationship. We don't need to sweep it under the rug anymore, but we need to speak about it openly and frankly and honestly because we've swept it under the rug for far too long. And in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18, Paul says, flee sexual immorality or fornication. Every sin that a man does is outside his body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. And talks about 
the, the danger of being joined to a harlot or giving yourself to, to the temptation of sexual immorality because what you're doing is destroying your soul and destroying your relationship with God and with Jesus Christ. Another way in which the world tells us that you need to decide for yourself what's right and wrong is when the world tells us that homosexuality is just an alternative lifestyle. You don't need to judge people who are homosexuals because it's nothing but a, a different lifestyle. Oh, it's different, all right. But it's different from what God wants. And that's why he says in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he begins to list different kinds of sins. And of course, all sin will keep a person from the kingdom. But he lists fornicators and idolaters and also lists homosexuals and sodomites. Which is the same thing as male homosexuals. I know the old King James Version used different words. But they mean the same thing. And we cannot deny it. And we cannot sweep it under the rug. We cannot overlook it because there are people in the world who are telling us that if well, some people in the homosexual world are telling us that if you don't tolerate our lifestyle and if you continue to speak against the homosexual lifestyle, then we're going to come into your churches and force the government to remove your tax-exempt status and we're going to do other things to force you to accept us. If you don't think so, listen to them. And listen to what they say. And listen to how they subtly try to change our thinking. And subtly try to challenge what the Word of God says about homosexuality. That moral relativism. And what they really want to do is make us so apathetic about their lifestyle that we give in to their thinking. Another way in which moral relativism manifests itself is when people say, you can do whatever you please with your body. And, and people not only just make that argument with the abortion debate, but they make it in other situa situations of life. This morning we looked at 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 19, for Paul said, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you and which you have from God and you are not your own? Therefore, you were bought with a price. And therefore, you should glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. I am no longer my own person. I am a Christian. I am a servant of the God Almighty in heaven. And I cannot just choose to do whatever I please with my body. Our world has it totally backwards when the world says that we should allow a young girl to be able to go into a clinic, and you can dress it up and call it Planned Parenthood if you want to, allow a young girl to go into a clinic and pay a few dollars or force the taxpayers to pay a few dollars for her to have an abortion. Whereas, on the other hand, we make married couples who do the right thing, married couples who want to bring children 
into a loving, stable environment, we put every aspect of their lives under a microscope before the state will allow them to bring children into their home. Before the state deems a couple worthy of raising children in their home. Brother A.C. Grider used to say, that doesn't even make good nonsense. And we as Christians, I'm afraid, have not spoken up enough, not only about abortion, but about how our society lures us into a state of apathy and laziness and indifference in all of these areas. Therefore, Christ's answer to moral relativism is in Matthew 7 and verse 13 when he said, Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. The last area that I want to look at tonight is how apathy not only manifests itself in materialism and moral relativism, but how it manifests itself in what we call ecumenicalism. And there's another one of those ten-gallon words again. But ecumenicalism basically says the doctrine of the ecumenical movement that promotes cooperation, better understanding among different religious denominations and it is aimed at universal Christian unity. And wouldn't it be wonderful if, all, if people of all faiths could be united in their service of Jesus Christ and united in what the Word of God says? Wouldn't that be fantastic? But it's not possible. It's not possible. Because there are people of different faiths who don't teach the Word of God and people of different faiths who don't teach all of God's Word. And sometimes we fall into the trap of not teaching all of God's Word or not living by all of God's Word. And sometimes we're lured into that state of apathy and indifference and not caring. And even though we don't believe what the world says, we end up practicing what the world says. The world tells us that one church is as good as another. The world tells us it doesn't matter what you believe. When Jesus plainly said, except you believe that I am he, you shall die in your sins. The world tells us we're saved by faith only. When James tells us that faith without works, works of obedience, is dead. It's a meaningless faith. The world tells us baptism's not necessary for salvation. What do you mean taking a person down into water is going to cleanse them from their sins and then going to help them live a different life? I may not understand everything about what happens in baptism, but I believe with all of my heart that a person who obeys the simple command to be baptized into Christ has made the decision to die to their sins and be buried in baptism in order to be raised to walk in newness of life. Baptism is absolutely necessary for salvation. Some of our brethren in the world are going away from that. Some of our brethren are being lured into the trap of the world, into the trap of Satan by, by 
by believing that baptism is no longer necessary. And the reason for that, I believe, is because they're more concerned about being accepted by the world around them than they are about pleasing God. And last of all, the world tells us the church needs to conform to the culture around us. The church needs to open its mind to having women preachers and women elders. The church needs to open its mind to having instruments of music in worship. And certainly, instruments sound good. And many of us enjoy beautiful music of all kinds. But the world tells us, you don't need to be so narrow-minded about how you worship God. You don't need to be so narrow-minded about not having gymnasiums and jazzercise classes and, and all sorts of things in your churches. Because after all, you need to serve all of the needs of your fellow man, don't you? Isn't that the argument we hear? And so what happens, I believe, is that people allow the, the apathy of the world to lure them into the trap of ecumenicalism. A man named Rollo May said, Hate is not the opposite of love. Apathy is the opposite of love. So, the question now becomes, even though we criticize some of our brethren for conforming to the world, and even going to the extent of believing, uh, in, 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 to the extent of becoming just like community churches, and that's exactly what they've become. And I will not apologize for making that statement. But at the same time, we need to examine ourselves and we need to ask ourselves, how can we become guilty of ecumenicalism so that we can be like everybody else? One way is by the fear and manifesting the fear of teaching the gospel. Jesus said in Matthew 5, You are the light of the world. A city that's set on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel. But they keep it, they, they, they light the house so that all that are in the house can see it. We cannot hide our lights. But when we do hide our lights and, and are so afraid of teaching the gospel that we don't even share the gospel with others, we are in effect becoming ecumenical. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 16, Woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. And that's not just Edwin's job. It's not just my responsibility as a gospel preacher. It's everyone's responsibility to share their faith and to shine their light before men so that they may glorify the Father, not glorify you, but to glorify the Father. And that means we have to be different from the world. The world tells us it doesn't matter what you believe. And if you speak against somebody's religious faith, then you're judging them. And God says, no, they're judging themselves. And what you need to be more concerned about is teaching the gospel, regardless of their culture, regardless of, of the color of their skin, regardless of what country they come from. You need to teach them the gospel. And no longer 
should we become guilty, and yes, we have become guilty of this, no longer should we become guilty of deciding for ourselves who is and who is not worthy of receiving the gospel. And if we're honest with ourselves, many of us have become guilty of that. Secondly, we can become guilty of this by being so overcome with the fear of rejection that we don't even share the gospel with others. Peter and John were told by the the council, "We, we commanded you strictly not to preach in the name of Jesus, and here you're bringing trouble in all the city, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And Peter and John said, we ought to obey God rather than men. They were more concerned about saving souls than they were about being rejected. Thirdly, many times we have a desire to be accepted by the secular and religious world. And that keeps us, for some reason, from sharing the pure and simple gospel of Jesus Christ. And also it manifests itself in lukewarmness. Isn't lukewarmness the same thing as apathy? and indifference. Why did Jesus, through the Apostle John, speak so sharply to the church at Laodicea in Revelation 3? Why did he tell them that, that I wish you were either cold nor hot, so then because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth? Now the world will say, how could you be so harsh, Lord? Aren't you a God of love? Aren't you a a, a Savior of peace? And Jesus says, since you can't make up your mind, and since you want to have it both ways, and since you're lukewarm in your service to me and in your worship to me, I will spit you out of my mouth. And you need to straighten up and repent. We can become lukewarm in our worship and in our daily service of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we could spend more time discussing that if we had the time. But Christ's answer to ecumenicalism is, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. I quoted that verse to somebody years ago in college. And they told me, that's just your interpretation. And as soon as I picked up my jaw from the ground, I said, first of all, that verse is in every reputable version of the Bible that you can find. And secondly, I didn't say that. Jesus said that. And when we start giving in to the lure of ecumenicalism, we need to snap ourselves back into reality and get back to the Father's business of teaching the lost, sharing the gospel with the lost. Because the gospel is for all. And not just the people that we think are worthy of receiving it. And so tonight as we've talked about the consequences of apathy that keeps us from being different in materialism, in moral relativism, and in ecumenicalism. We want to come back to what Jesus tells us in Matthew 5 and verse 20, 
that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. But we want to remember the words of the song we just sang, where we said, this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door. And I can't feel at home in this world anymore. The Lord's challenge is for all of us to be different. Not to be boastful and, and arrogant about our blessings in Christ, but to be humble and loving and so grateful for our blessings in Christ that we would want to share that with other people around us. 